Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to David. David is the GP of not one, but two VC funds, Accelerance Invest and Overkill Ventures. Accelerance Invest is Denmark's leading startup accelerator and pre-seed investor, having supported 800 plus Danish and international startups. And Overkill Ventures is a Latvia-based angel fund that invests in pre-seed B2B tech startups across CEE and Nordic markets. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to 4Degrees. 4Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, 4Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how 4Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit 4Degrees.ai forward slash EUVC. David, my dear fellow countrymen, welcome to the show. I'm super happy to be bringing on a Danin for this show. Yeah, thank you so much. Really excited to go on. David, just before we start and dive into the nitty-gritty stuff, I think we should just hear your path into venture, what got you here. And speaking of, I think David was one of the very first guys I met in the VC industry who I thought, wow, this guy knows a lot. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I do remember our meetings of years ago on a summit terrace in Copenhagen. Yeah. My path into venture actually started with me, I think, getting my entire reality destroyed in a hotel room in Toronto about 12 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in Toronto negotiating a huge deal for my startup. I was uh, dealing with this publicly traded market-leading software company, and the CEO had invited me to his home to meet his wife, son. So we're going to sit down and eat and we're actually going to see his son play hockey <laughs> and talk about the deal and basically signing it, I guess, at the end of that meeting. But a few hours before that, I had been invited to a board meeting to go for my hotel room. And in this board meeting sat a person who I wasn't, wasn't normally there. And he turned out to be my replacement. <laughs> I got fired in that board meeting. Immediately stripped by my title and the right to represent the company. <laughs> And I was in utter shock at not seeing that coming. I had maybe seen that coming, but I definitely didn't think it would happen right there and then. And uh, frankly, I didn't know what to do. So I think you go through all these stages of, I don't know, grief, but I definitely did go directly into denial. <laughs> this hasn't happened. This hasn't happened. I'm not sure what to do. So I basically convinced myself it hadn't happened that I took the meeting anyway. So I went uh, to meet the CEO of the company, went to his house, and his uh, wife, lovely wife, had cooked up some dinner, and we sat and cheered and basically congratulated each other on our future together. <laughs> and I went to see his son play hockey. But over the course of this, I just felt worse and worse because, of course, the realization of me sitting there, I couldn't represent the company. I wasn't fired, <laughs> but I couldn't tell him. And that was the most painful couple of, I don't know, I, time disappeared. 
It was just the most utterly painful thing I've ever tried in my entire life. So I think that was really a humbling experience, but also had for me to start thinking about the other side, the investor side, because I've just been fired by my investors. So basically, after that, I spent a year just thinking about what I had learned and to try to assemble reality for me again. Because I had been, like I said, my reality had been destroyed because I was certain that we were going to succeed as a startup. There was not a single thing in my mind that doubted that we would succeed. I knew we would succeed. And I thought we did all of the right things. And I still got fired. And yet the company actually didn't do that well. I really struggled with that for a long time and trying to understand, first of all, what had I done wrong, but also what had the investors really done wrong, right? Because of course, when you get fired, it's because the relationship isn't that good. In the end, partly that was my fault because I basically treated my investors like bankers, basically. I just needed, to, <laughs> I just needed money to get out of my way. And I don't think that was easy to work with. So all of these things really led me to seek a deep, deep understanding of what actually makes startups successful early on. Because obviously, I thought we were going to be successful. I thought we had all of the right ingredients, but it turned out we didn't. So I must have gotten something wrong. What was that? And also, how could you become an investor that could help a startup actually go through that journey and not be the investor that I had who couldn't help us and yet ended up to fire the founders of a company that had not yet hit product market fit. When you do that, the company dies. I knew they were making the biggest mistake of their life because not that their life, but it was a big mistake <laughs> on the company's life. I'm pretty sure it, yeah. all in all, it wouldn't count that much. But in the company's life, they definitely made a huge mistake because I knew we had not found product market fit. And there's no way you can fire founders from a company that haven't found product market fit because we were selling because we we're founders because we could meet a customer and I could basically sell him something we didn't have. And I could talk about the vision and I was passionate. Get some professional CEO and a sales team to go in and try to do that. Not going to happen. And it didn't. After setting the scene like that, thank you for sharing that. That's super, super interesting to hear. Tell us about Accelerace and which, <laughs> what is Accelerace for our audience and what lessons did you take from that story you just shared with us into Accelerace? Yeah, I knew Accelerace at the time because Accelerace... I had participated in the very first year of Accelerate back in 2009 when Accelerate launched that Accelerator program, which were in many ways modeled after Y Combinator, basically being one of the first real accelerators in the Nordics and definitely the first in Denmark. So I participated in that program with my startup. So I knew the founder of Accelerate, Peter, really well at the time. And Peter was one of the few investors. We had three institutional investors at the end of the, the company's lifetime. And Peter was one of the few investors who actually really got the startups and got me as a startup founder. And he was really supportive along the way. So when we exited the company and folded, I fired him all on that. I went back to Accelerate, talked to Peter about it. I think he was almost like a, a psychotherapist for me, a limbiment in my story and all of the things because he knew the journey. And he said, why don't you come and help us out here, Accelerate? Maybe some of your learnings can be applied to, to some of the batches going through Accelerate right now. And I felt so much meaning in that because I, like I said, I spent this year after that actually just talking to Peter, but also just writing and writing and writing about what I have learned. So I felt so ready to help startup founders. So I joined Accelerate. At the time, Accelerate was, like I said, model at the YC, but it was also at a time when there were no real startup founder generation in Denmark. So everyone involved in startup and investing didn't really come from startup. 
So I was actually one of the first people joining Accelerate who was actually the startup founder. It sounds weird today, right? An Accelerator run by non-startup founders. But that was the case at the time. Small people who came from innovation and corporate, they came from management consulting, they were good at dissecting problems, creating business cases, but they actually didn't know the all the nitty-gritty details of starting a startup from the scratch and how it feels like and all the real problems that you run from a startup. Yeah. So I think I started that journey in Accelerate. So as you said, right, Accelerator and Precede Investor, you guys are quite aggressive in terms of the number of deals you do on a yearly basis. At least that's my understanding. Feel free to, to just clarify that before answering. But uh, I have to ask a provoking question here, you know, You just shared some thoughts and your experience in, in founder VC relationships and how that's important, or at least how that affected your startup. And I have to ask, you know, we're doing so many investments on a yearly basis. How do you foster that? How do you think about that in Accelerate section? Right. So we do more than 20 investments a year, which is put in context, I guess, more than four times what a normal VC would do. But we also write small tickets, right? So we do it through institutionalizing the process of getting to know the founder. So that is what we do through the acceleration program where we run companies in batches. So that gives economics of scale in, in a sense and a really efficient process in uh, obtaining deep understanding of all these startups. And then we have a hybrid model where they do a lot of work online through online courses, proprietary online courses and workshop we have with tools. So when they meet us for the first time, we actually don't have to get all of the information through conversation. So we actually think directly into some of the hairy topics of the startup, like what is your business, what is your value proposition. They already created a version of that on our online accelerator platform. So we dig directly down into some of the elements that are crucial for startup success. So we really get to know them over this course of an accelerator program at us to the last in between three to six months, depending on We run multiple different programs, but depending on the program, around uh, three to six months. And the crucial thing for us is that we actually don't really rely on external mentors. So what most accelerators do, it's actually just a program of interactions with people coming to the accelerator and talking to the batch. And that means a lot of the conversation going on between the mentors and the startups is really captured by the accelerator organization. Because if I'm a mentor at some accelerator, I talk to the startup, But that information, when I stop being a mentor, that all that learning goes with me. It's not captured by the accelerator organization. Now we are a little bit different. So we try to capture all the information that we learn from our startups. So that means we as the staff do most of the mentoring today. That also requires the staff to actually have that experience to be able yeah. to mentor startups, which is why Accelerate today is run by startup founders and alumni of, of Accelerate. So we try to capture that, disseminate that throughout the organization and try to repurpose that as genera genera uh, generalizationable. I can't even say that word in English. But you can generalize <laughs> the knowledge of the into tools and theories and tips to the next batch. So that's really what we're trying to do. So I think that's how we do it. We run it as a batch and really, really dig ourselves as a staff, our teeth deep into these companies. Before moving on, can you just give a quick overview of the fund and investment strategy that you guys have? Because as you said, doing pre-seed, small tickets. Are you also doing follow-ons? Are you not? Just for us to have like a shared understanding there. Yeah. So we have three funds right now, and they are all around 5 million euros. So they are tiny. But uh, like Mabel says, fund size is just strategy, right? So we think that makes us very distinct because we know very few other institutional investors who have funds of that size. Yeah. 
And that is immensely important because that forces us to write really small checks and go in really early. And that forces us to another question, like how can we evaluate companies that are this early? So we define our stage as what we call pre-traction. And we want to become experts in pre-traction. We want to be able to look at a company that has zero revenue, zero customers, only an MVP, and the beginning of a very core team members, and be able to evaluate that and says, is this a company that could return a meaningful result to our fund? So that is what we want to be able to do. We are not a seed stage investor. There are incredible seed stage investors in Denmark, and you had one of them on your podcast, yeah, yeah, uh, Seed Capital. We are going to try to do what they do they're really good at what they do. But if you go to Seed Capital as a startup and you do not have customers, you do not have revenue, they are going to tell you, come back in six months and we'll look at your KPIs. And we're not going to do that. We are trying to look at something else that is present in those startups that we can use to evaluate the quality and, from our perspective, the likelihood of them making a meaningful return to our fund. And I think this is a perfect transition into then Okay, what is the Accelerates Invest Framework? I want to kick this off by asking you to do use the basketball analogy that you used last time we spoke, because I think that's a really good entry point. Thinking of Accelerates really came in parts from all of the pain I just talked about, right? <laughs> from my own experience. And then I really tried to understand when I started Intervention, when I began at Accelerates, I basically took over the fund of Accelerates and became the fund manager and had to was tasked by creating the investment strategy. I started talking to a lot of VCs, obviously, because I wasn't a VC. I was just not a founder. I talked to all the VCs I could get a meeting with, and I listened to all the podcasts about VCs. And what struck me was again and again that everyone said team is the most important, and especially in the early stages. And I knew we were going to invest in the early stages. And I knew how important the team was because in my startup, the team was the only thing that made that startup run because we haven't found product market fit. We didn't have processes. We didn't have all the things that requires you to actually go and scale. It was just we were ferocious. We just wanted it to succeed no matter what. So I knew the team were important. Everyone said the team were important. And then I asked, how do we evaluate the team? And no one could give me a clear answer. Everyone was like, yeah, we really like if they have previous success, if they have really industry expertise, but no one could really tell me. And that frustrated me because I thought, hey, these guys are supposed to be professionals. If what they do as for a living is to evaluate teams why can't they tell me how they evaluate team and what a great founder team is? So I started really thinking about that. And one of the things that dawned to me early on was I think that the way that many investors look at startup teams are a little bit wrong because I think there are two different factors that characterizes a team. There's something that we today at Accelerate call entry criteria, and then there's something we call excellence criteria. And the analogy for the basketball team is if you wanted to pick really good basketball players, but before they were good basketball players, because that's what pre-traction is, if you wanted to pick really good basketball players, so you went to any sort of public school and just wanted to pick a team you thought could have the chance to do well in the NBA, what would you look for? Well, naturally, you would look for height, tallness, because tall people can become basketball players. 
But that doesn't mean that all tall people become good basketball players. It's an entry criteria into basketball. There's no way you can become a great basketball player and make it in the NBA unless you have a certain height. But having a above that height, it doesn't matter. Actually, if you correlate the heights of basketball players with their income level, there's no real correlation between it. You could be an excellent basketball player, and I think that, of course, Michael Jordan proved that, not by being necessarily the tallest. The same actually in Formula One, where weight is an entry criteria. You actually need to be pretty light to go into a Formula race car. And if you look at all the drivers on the roster, they're all light. They're all below a certain weight, which is around, seems to be around 70 kilos. But actually, Lewis Hamilton is one of the heaviest. So it's actually only an entry criteria. So when you identify the entry criteria, then you need to understand that we're not looking for extremely tall people. We're just looking for people that are tall enough. And once they're tall enough, it's something else that you have to look for, for founder teams. So we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the entry criteria and what are the exit criteria of founder teams. They have slightly changed over the duration of Accelerates because we got smarter. But today we're working with that framework and looking at a team and do they have enough of that? And then how can we evaluate the excellence criteria through our Accelerates program and really like get to understand whether they are also great basketball players. And that's not tallness, that is court sense, that is speed, that is some of the other things that requires to be a great startup founder. And David, I'd love for you to just say, you know, the entry criteria, what are they for you? I'd love that you call it the entry criteria because you have so many people calling this their criteria, <laughs> but you yeah. call it your entry criteria, meaning that there's then the excellence criteria. So I'd love yeah. for you to go through all of those. Okay, so the way we look at it, startups, teams, need to have a certain amount of criteria in order to have any chance of success. If they don't have it, the chance will go to zero. Like if I wanted to try to play the basketball, I'm only 178. The first thing is you need to be a complete team. You need to have a complete team. And we do see a lot of startups being attempted by people who do not have a complete team. And that is almost like trying to win a football game without a goalkeeper, right? It's impossible. You're not going to win. There's no chance you're ever going to win. So equivalent to that would be we want to do a consumer app, but we don't know consumer marketing. We want to do a SaaS enterprise startup. We don't have anyone in our team who know how to navigate complex sales into enterprises. Or we want to build this AI startup, but we don't have any AI people. So the first thing you need to have is a complete team. Every business model has critical disciplines that you need to master. Unless you have someone on your team who can do that critical discipline to the effect that you can get the product on the market, then you don't have a complete team and your chance goes to zero. Then you need to be committed enough. So we do see a lot of startup teams where they're, yeah, I mean, once we get funding, once we do get this and this, then we will quit our jobs, then we will do the startup. You're not going to succeed. Your chance goes to zero because creating a startup is probably the hardest thing you've ever tried in your life. And I don't know anyone except for very few crazy people who have actually done a startup successfully and actually go back to starting a startup from scratch again. Most people don't do it. They will never do it again because it's so taxing. It is the most brutal experience you've ever tried. You need full commitment. And then you need the right motivation. And that's a little bit like commitment, but it's also separate. There are many reasons to do a startup, many reasons to start, and we see all of them in a program like Accelerate is all when we see the applicants. 
And many of them are, are frankly not good reasons to start a startup. And uh, many of these uh, falls under it. I want to have a CEO title and manage people really quickly in my career. Or I'm tired of corporate life and I have this ideal idea about a startup and being a rock band and so on. <laughs> and there are so many of these motivation that has nothing to do with really solving the problem for the customer or materializing a very specific product vision that you have. And once the hardship hits you, the lack of real motivation will make you stop way before you will hit product market fit. Those are the key things that we're looking at. We have a team, it's complete, they're committed, they have the right motivation, then we start looking at the excellence criteria. And let's go through them, give us the excellence criteria. So the excellence criteria are things that you can only really, I think, observe while working with the startup founders. And I think we sort of know that intuitively. And I think that other fields where you're picking people who are rare specimens of the human race, right? What this is really about, they are also observing people throughout a period of time. So... NASA have its training program where they train the astronauts. Well, they're not just picking astronauts out of interviews and pitches. They're actually putting astronauts in a training program to observe how they behave in order to evaluate whether they're good astronauts. Same with elite soldiers and so on and so on. So we see our startup acceleration program a little bit like that. So we have the opportunity to see these people in real action over a period of time. And the first thing we're looking for is what we call the impact factor. That's that they get a lot of stuff done in a short amount of time. And our proxy for that is basically with every interaction, they come back and have done what they said they would do, plus a little bit more because they couldn't help themselves. <laughs> That's the impact factor. The second thing we're looking for is something we call the smartness factor. And the smartness factor is their ability to find creative solutions to their problems. Every startup almost has some kind of version of the chicken and the egg problem. Some have it more directly than others because they have a marketplace, but most people just have it because in order to actually do anything, you need money, you need resources, you need the reputation and so on. And no startup has that at pre-traction stage when we're working with the startups. So you need to find creative solutions in order to solve that problem because if your only answer to that is, I need to raise money, I need to raise, I need to become more famous. I need money so I can put in marketing on billboards so people will know me and then my life is going to become easier. If that is your answer to solving your problem, you're not going to succeed. So the more creative you are, the more smart you are in that sense, what we call the smart time facts, but it's really creativity proxy. The more likely we think that founder team is to succeed and succeed for us is to get to seed stage, basically the product market fit, get traction and then be able to get funding from some of the other guests that you had on this podcast. That is the smartness factor. Then we have something we call the leadership factor. And that is your ability to tell stories that will make other people sacrifice something very expensive in order to come and help you. So it's basically the opportunity cost you can get other people to pay to help you. That means if you're a startup founder and you need an incredible advisor, can you get that advice? And can you get that advice to spend time with you? Because if that's an incredible person, that incredible person will have endless opportunity to spend their time. They can probably mentor any company they want and they could get huge consultancy fees and they could be anything they wanted. How can you get them to join you? 
employees, advisors, board members, investors. You only have one tool in your toolbox for that as a startup founder. That's basically painting the vision and talking passionately about how your vision will make the life of that person also better, right? And they want to attach themselves to that mission. It's a specific skill, like speed in basketball. The better you are, the better people you can attract and the higher your chances to succeed. So the leadership factor is incredibly important. We look for that in our program. So we have a course basically called critical skills, and they basically have to list all the critical skills of their business. And if there are some holes in their critical skills, which there always are, then we ask them, try to fill that gap with a founding employee, a co-founder, an advisory board member, someone. And we observe if they're able to get someone to pay extreme opportunity cost to go help that startup founder and that team. And the last thing is something we call crazy factor. And it's basically the ability to venture outside the norms and feel comfortable doing it. So as a startup founder, again, it goes a little bit back to the chicken and egg problem and the creativity. You have to do things that are out of the ordinary in order to get to where you want to go. And often that means that you need to be able to do something that feels incredibly uncomfortable. And that could be making a large promise to a customer where you deep down know I do not have what I'm selling right now. <laughs> that could be that. But there are many examples of that. It could be chasing down an investor. Basically, that investor, you don't have any relationship to them investor. You can't get an intro. And you are going to find out where that investor drinks coffee, and you're going to that place, and you're going to be dressed up like a waiter and just ask, yeah. hey, can I get you something? And that says, says, says no, and then you pitch him instead. Something like that. I'm not saying that was a good idea, and I don't suggest anyone do exactly that. <laughs> but if you did, it would definitely show that you had what we do call the crazy factor. And it's your ability to do whatever it takes to succeed and be able to do things that are incredibly uncomfortable. And we do, unfortunately, see a lot of startup founders that sort of prefer to spend most of the time working on their business model canvas and update the pitch deck, where what they really need to do is go and chase down some of those people that they need to talk to. I think we could end the episode here and it would be a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love framework thinkers like you. That's why I've been looking so much forward to this episode as well. So David, maybe just put a few words to how you test for these factors. You've mentioned it along the way, but I'd love to hear more about, okay, you now have this framework that you're using. How does it fit into the program? How do you look for it? And also, if you'd go that far, think about, how should VCs do it? You have your own accelerator, so you can actually observe this. But what if you were to do this without having had spent time with the founders? Okay, let me start with the insight on how we do it. And I think I'm not saying that we have found the ultimate way of doing it yet. And we're constantly improving on our ability to do this. So if we talk again in three years, I think we still have the same framework. But the way that we collect this information extracted information out of the teams is going to be a little bit different, probably. But the way that we're currently doing and that it works for us is that we will have a team of what we call business accelerators and investment managers. So they have a split responsibility. They do investment management, like we would know from any other VC, and then we, they're also business accelerators, which means that they do the office hours, which are currently in many of our programs bi-weekly, and then they do the workshops. Now, in many of these interactions, we are more than one investment manager on the company. So that means we have a multiple observation from multiple people on the same team. Then throughout the program, we sit down in the team. We have weekly meetings. 
And we look at these companies and we're trying to understand whether we can yet score these companies on these startups on the things that we're looking for. And once we feel we can do that, and we do that by basically taking our observations, comparing them to a scoring guide that we have, which basically is framed with examples of earlier startups. So we have an example of a company that scored really high on one of the parameters. So how similar are this company to this company? And we also have, unfortunately, or not unfortunately for us, less fortunate for the specific company to be a representative of the low ranking on that parameter. So what does a team with very low impact factor look like? Well, they always come and tell us, like that team did, remember that team? They always come and tell us, yeah, we need the money to do something. Once you raise money, we can move. And then you have this other team with a representative or something else. So we're using analogies that we feel are representative of a category through our 11 years of acceleration. We've done more than 700 companies. So obviously this large data set basically gives us the ability to find categorization of those and find representatives of companies we find are valid representatives of, of such a team. So that's currently how we're doing. We're constantly working with see if we can add further granularity. And in many of our aspects or of things we rate, we actually now have a five-level system where you can actually put them into one of five levels. But with some of them, it's still harder. So some of them, we're still working with the analogy method. So that's how we do it. Once we have information, we feel where we know the company. And if they are ticking our boxes, we will pursue the investment in the company. And we invest in about a third of the companies that we accelerate. I'm curious because you mentioned earlier Mark Maples Jr. He has yeah. a framework of original insight or breakthrough yeah. insight. I'm curious to hear how you test for it and if you're inspired by his method of using seers and practitioners. Yeah, so we are very inspired by the thought of original insight. It's a word that we use a lot in Accelerates. Uh, and that is one of the things that we require all the companies to obtain during our acceleration program. So they need to obtain original insight. If they don't have it, best case is they have it. But the fact is that most startups actually do not have original insight. Original insight, the way we define it, is basically knowing something about a customer that no one else really knows that is a valid and important piece of information for you to build a product upon. I think Mike Mables Jr. is talking about it more like a secret that is shared between you and the customer. It's a little bit about the same, but it can be difficult to uncover a secret, but it can be somewhat easier to obtain really, really granular understanding of a customer. It makes it a little more actionable, I think. So, yeah, it's immensely important. If you don't have a startup, basically built an insight. Right. And that's how I felt in my startup, because we didn't have insight. We just had a vision. And that's one of the things I understand today, that one of the reasons why we felt is that we didn't really understand our customers. And what we understood about them was what everyone understands, something you <laughs> read about. So because we didn't understand our customers to the deepest, minutest level, we were unable to articulate a value proposition to them that were basically a no-brainer for them. The only way you can sell a product as a startup is to find someone who is close to desperate because you have an unknown product from an unknown company and no sane person would ever buy an unknown product from an unknown company unless they're a little bit desperate. Now, you need to understand that desperation to the minutest detail because people also do not like to portray themselves as desperate. They don't like to admit they're desperate. So you need to understand that desperation. You need to be able to talk into that. And that is original insight. And that is what is the key task as a startup founder and something we require all of us startup founders once in the program, once they check the entry criteria, once they see them in action. That's just one of the things we always ask them to go do. This is awesome, David. 
Just before going to the quick fire round, I would love to ask you to touch on uh, beta versus alpha growth, because I think that's also an interesting concept that you're employing. Yeah, that was a concept that came later. Uh, the enter and exit list criteria, I think, was our first framework really to evaluate startup teams. That was a proprietary, basically, way to do that. This later came alpha and beta, which is basically we had observed in our very first fund that uh, we had companies that scored equally high on enter and exit list criteria teams, but it didn't explain the difference between the outcomes. It's actually funny because I think the company that scored highest on our entry and excellence criteria actually didn't perform that well. And obviously our model told us excellent startup teams will perform better than non-excellent startup teams, right? So if you have a basketball player, two basketball players, they're equally tall and they are both incredibly fast, incredible courses, but one is just worth 50 times more than the other person. You have to ask yourself the question, like there's something incomplete about the way I evaluate basketball players. And the same thing with us, there's something incomplete in the way we evaluated startups. Because we actually had that situation and we could see that wasn't a fluke. So we tried to ask ourselves, okay, so we understand what actually makes for great startup teams. Can we also starting to explain what identifies startups that will grow bigger than other startups with the same criteria. And the first thing we really understood by looking at all the startups we work with was that the startups that grow, they are marked by a very, very simple characteristic. And it's so simple that it eludes you because it's hidden in plain sight. It is the fact that a lot of new customers are entering the market in which they're selling their product to every year. So there's just a lot of new customers coming into the market. Why is that important? Well, one thing, the market grows, but that's not necessarily the most important things because they're new customers. They don't have existing vendor solutions. They haven't developed their own solution or had some kind of solution or have some kind of process that they really like. So when you're entering a market where there's a lot of new participants, they're all scrambling for solutions to the problem. And that is the desperation I talked about before. They need to have this problem solved. So this is what really marks the startups from our observation anyway, that grows fast. It is the companies that that's servicing a new type of businesses that's venturing to the market. I think one of the best examples of that would be something like Unity Technologies that actually had a, now we're talking the Danish framework, right? Unity Technologies, a company-based startup was, which uh, basically enabled the game developers to create games for iOS devices. And they were a small company and nothing really happened until Apple launched the iPhone or the generation of the iPhone that had 3G and App Store. And the device became the biggest gaming device in the world. And a lot of new people suddenly set up shop trying to create games for the iOS and they needed tools for them. So it's an exploding market with new entrants. We see a lot of companies going for huge established verticals, saying we are going to make a SaaS for this huge established vertical. It's big and they can, this has a huge TAM, but as a startup, it's going to be very, very difficult to grow fast in such a market. Because if that is an established market, everyone will have existing solutions. And there's a lot of pride built up inside those organizations by the people who have already built some kind of very elaborate Excel sheet or use some kind of other tool where they have a very good relationship with the vendor for that. So that is the first thing. That's what we call beta. And today that we know what we're talking about, we call beta. Basically, are you on a beach 
where the sun has suddenly started shining and everyone's pouring to the beach and there's no other on that beach on the water. Are you that guy right now? Is it an exploding market with new entrants? Then the second thing is basically the alpha because we could still, when we tested these things and looked at our portfolio, we could still find companies that had similar levels of beta, we would say, but still grew also different. We tried to explain what is the difference in that. Then what we call alpha. So basically the difference from if you have two companies, they're both in the growing market, but one grows faster than the other. What is the alpha here? And the alpha for us turns out to be reinforcing value loops, which uh, I think Jim Collins calls it the flywheel effect. But that is also what we can observe. We just like to call it reinforcing value loop because we don't think it's an energy that just rotates. It's an energy that actually becomes larger and larger over time. So it actually becomes reinforcing. That's what we call the reinforcing value loops. And that's the main alpha you have. You have a couple of other sources of alpha, but it's definitely the most important one. And I think most of the listeners here, because they're VC geeks, probably they know what a flywheel is. And it's, of course, that you get your product becomes more and more valuable with more and more customers and so on and so on. And we can definitely observe that as well. Thank you for referring to our listeners as VC geeks. <laughs> That's a proud moment. <laughs> Listen, David, super interesting, super cool. I think this episode will be packed with insights for many of our emerging VCs listening in. That's awesome. That's super cool. Thank you for that. And so let's move into the quick fire round because we're running out of time. The quick fire round is how we like to end our episodes. 30 to 60 second answer per question. Are you ready? Yes. So as an operator that transitioned into VC, what was like the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned? I thought that startups would either be big or fail. That's not true. Most startups just become small businesses. Mm. Most startups actually still are alive in our portfolio from our very first fund. This is still nine people. Yeah. So it's not true. So most startups just fail to scale. Second question. What would be your uh, three top tips for emerging VCs in Europe? Yeah, I think one of the most important thing is that you need to understand how you are thinking differently in terms of evaluating companies, because that's essentially your job. That is to evaluate companies. Also, of course, the deals, those companies and so on. But your IP and what really makes you different, your product to LPs is basically your filter. Because you're selling return, but how are you selling the return to your LPs? Well, you're doing it by telling them either that you have a different deal channel, which I don't think very many VCs actually have. So it must be come down to the way that you evaluate these companies. So I think that unless that you can go to LPs and show free funds that have done excellent returns, you need to really tell them how are you doing this differently? Do you have original insight? Do you understand something about our startups that no one else understands? And I think that is really, really the most important for, and that is definitely how we raised yeah. our funds. So that's what we did. We did that without any prior track record of being able to do like 10x funds, right? So I know that that was one of the things that DLP thought. Third question, what areas or sectors or subsectors or industries excite you the most? or even technologies excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I started investing into crypto in 2016. In 2017, I wrote a blog about NFTs. At the time, no one called them NFTs. The coin was a term. You can find it yeah. on my blog. I called it unique digital assets at the time. <laughs> I feel that no one still understands NFTs. That wasn't a cool enough name. It had to be something like non-fungible <laughs> token. <Yeah. laughs> I would have liked that I had the naming right for that. Uh, uh, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. 
I, I think they're immensely important. I think they're going to change all things digital as we know it. What people don't really understand is that the innovation is really not the pictures and the art. It's the fundamental scarcity behind it. Yeah. And scarcity yeah. is really how we assign value, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah. NFTs, yeah. it's going to change so much. And I still think people still don't get them for some reason. NFTs, a.k.a. UDAs, right? <laughs> <laughs> If I could have a follow-up question on that one, what then describes to you why NFTs, at least from the outside, seems to be focused around what I almost want to call the incredibly boring applications of the technology? Like art. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, to use a very used VC term, it's schemorphic. It is a thing where we take something that we know from the existing realm and take it into the new uh, as the first thing, right? Because that's sort of, yeah, it's a picture and that's art. And we understand that a piece of art, yeah. a bone at least, there's only one of them. And we can make that analogy, but over time, we will see crypto native uses of NFTs. And I think that it's just so many standards and so many things and to really get our head around that. But those are, are the really interesting applications. So I, I completely agree. In the beginning here, we'll see those kind of things that is basically a digital replica of something that we know. And then we'll start seeing things that emerge that we have never seen before. And we already started to see that, right? But it will take some time. Yeah. Final question. What can we expect in the future from David Wenzel and Accelerace? We can expect that Accelerace will not turn into a late-stage VC. We will uh, remain pre-checked because that is the only thing we know about. That's where we're passionate. We will um, continue to help startup founders in their earlier stages because we believe that is the most impactful place that you can help entrepreneurs. And the first check is the most important and getting them to some of the later stage VCs is one of the most meaningful things that we can do. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.